So if you're a, a, a value investor and you buy into something, you're never sure that you're going to be right. But if you're uh, confident that you're going to be right and you have reasons on your side and then something is cheap enough and that's the whole thing behind and you know a lot of Keith Gill watches videos his language is the language of Benjamin Graham who you know who's Warren Buffett's mentor you, you know he he there's a margin of safety in it mm. so you know if i'm if i'm right then this thing is undervalued and if if i'm wrong then it, it's worth at least this much and and that's that's how value investors think so he was uh he may have put yolo on his posts but he was making basically a, a value argument Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Links for everything will be in the description below. So please enjoy the podcast. Uh, yeah, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm here with Spencer Jacob, the author of the great book, The Revolution That Wasn't, which I have, yeah, just finished, literally. Um, so Spencer, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, not a problem. So uh, I was really curious to get, get in touch with you when I saw the book um, announced because, uh, as you may or may not know, I'm writing a book about GameStop as well. Um, and mm -hmm. I have a a, a different side, I think, to the story that you've told mm -hmm. um, and a different take on some of the things. But um, I definitely thought the book was, was like I said, really well put together. Um, it was really well, well written, well told. Like the story, the story flows brilliantly. Like you've, you've done a really good job of pacing the events, like leading up to the, the uh, January 29th. And um, for me, even as someone who, yeah, perhaps, like I said, didn't 100% agree with your takes is like, it was mm -hmm. a really great I don't know. I felt like I was reliving it in a way, which, which mm -hmm. you know, I think is a good sign for yourself that you've you've done a good job of like articulating the the energy that was around at that moment in in around Reddit and and uh, yeah, Robin Hood and whatnot. So first off, why don't you you tell people like why you decided to write the book and and where you first like thought, okay, I'm gonna put this on paper and write this story. Well, so I've been a, a financial journalist for close to 20 years now. Uh, I, I like doing it. I, I think there's just great stories in finance. There's great human dramas. Uh, I think you, you see, um, you really see people's personalities, the best and the worst of them come out when money is involved. And so I love to write about it. Um, it was January 25th of last year. I was at home because of COVID. I have three sons. Uh, who are all frequent, or let's say were frequent visitors to to GameStop back in its its heyday. Uh, so I've been there a billion times. I don't know. I've been to to GameStop a lot. I know GameStop very well. We were subscribers to the Power Up Rewards and the magazine and all that stuff. And uh, they, had, they hadn't been asking me to go there for a while, not just because of the pandemic, just as you all know that games have become mostly digitized these days. Uh, they play, play more video games, but fewer uh, physical media. My oldest boy, uh, who's uh, now out in the working world, he was at uh, the final year of university, and we were both working at home, at home because of COVID, said, Dad, are you going to write something about GameStop? 
and he's he's on Wall Street bets. Uh, he's he's on Reddit all the time. Um, and I said, well, why why would I do that? And a friend of his, not him, but a friend of his had had bought the stock. I took a look at it. I said, yeah, they, they talked about it on Wall Street bets. I was generally aware that stocks that got talked about a lot on Wall Street bets do go up for a day or two or a week. That had been happening for a while. I said, well, listen, your friend looks like he made some money, but don't don't hang around because you know I know how these things go. And he said, no, 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 he's not going to sell. And that was something different, right? What do you mean you're not going to sell? And so he explained that you know, no, you had to have diamond hands and hang on, and that they're putting trying to put these hedge funds out of money. So I, you know, my curiosity was immediately piqued. And I, I'm a big student of financial history, so I, I know that this is something that that did happen up until 100 years ago here in the United States, it was a pretty frequent occurrence that you would try to have a, a corner or a massive short squeeze, that you would uh, basically sneak up on people and, and do it. And that this was happening out in the open in a completely legal way on, uh, you know, on, on the internet uh, among strangers was, was fascinating to me. So I knew that I, I, it was going to be a great story. I knew that there were going to be fireworks and it was going to go a lot higher. And uh, I, you know, immediately sent an email to Penguin Random House, the publisher here in the US. And they said, oh, we haven't heard about that. Do you have a book proposal? I said, no, 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 this is, this is happening now. This is going to be happening in the next, next several days. And then as, as events you know, went, got even crazier, that I knew that I had to write about it. And my conception of it changed. I knew that it was a crazy story that had to be written about, but it was much more than a crazy story because it's, it's really the same old story at the same time. The same old story of of people trying to beat Wall Street and in, in many cases failing and playing right into Wall Street's hands uh, that has been happening for well over a century here in the United States and and other places with developed financial markets as well and so um, and and that's something I have written about before my first book was about all the errors that investors make and, and shouldn't make and so it it, it really was. A continuation of that theme with a great story uh, on top of it. Mm. So, one of the that 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 sort of brings us actually quite nicely to to this this idea that it was the yeah the the revolution that wasn't. So the the conception basically from from my my understanding of reading it is that there was this pers- this this idea that the the little guy had finally stuck it to Wall Street in some way mm-hmm. and. Um, I was uh, I was kind of stunned in a way to find out like how much Citadel had profited off of this, like because yeah. they, I, I was aware that that Melvin uh, Melvin Capital had had not done well out of this. Um, they bounced back yeah, a little putting, bit, putting, and, putting putting it mildly. Yeah. yeah, and they ended up as the um, I think the worst performing hedge fund of of twenty twenty one, as far as I'm aware. Which yeah, I probably largely in part to, to January, <laughs> but yeah, no, it, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, Yes. Yeah, Look, so- I mean, this here's here's one way to think about it, right? You you go to Las Vegas, right? And um, let's say you you and a bunch of your friends are very clever card counters, which is not illegal, but you'll get thrown out of the casino if they they find out that you're doing that. Uh, but let's say they don't. You have disguises, and you're very smart about it. Yeah. And you go in and uh, and you take a couple of casinos down for so much money that they just have they don't go out of business, but they're they have a devastating loss, um, and and you, you know, and then you walk away with a bunch of money, uh, and then somebody writes a book about it. Ben Mesrich did write a book about about a very similar case. Uh, well, then you're going to have 
you're going to have tens of thousands of people trying to emulate you and probably not succeeding, uh, showing up, uh, attracted to it. Uh, you're going to have all kinds of newspaper articles. You're going to have a much larger uh, crowd of people showing up in Las Vegas generally because they're fascinated by this whole notion of, of being able to beat the house because people generally think that you can't beat the house. Now, what what is Wall, what is Las Vegas rather uh, made up of? It's made up of not just the people who might lose money to you in a card game. They're the people who uh, own the hotels, who drive the taxis, who own the restaurants, who clean your room, all the people up and down the food chain, the per- person who parks your car and gets paid $5 to go and retrieve it. And, and Wall Street is, is like that too. Wall Street is a very big place. I, I used to work on Wall Street. That was my first career. Uh, before I took a massive pay cut to to write about it. And Wall Street mostly likes it when people are are active. Uh, Wall Street is uh, is very, very happy when lots of, of new people come into the game with their money uh, and think that uh, that it, it's highly likely that they'll beat the house. And of course, Wall Street is not uh, is not Las Vegas because Wall Street, the, the long run record of Wall Street is very good you can beat the house. You generally do beat the house because if you just passively invest in stocks or passively make investments, then you'll do well. If you passively gamble, then you'll lose all your money, right? The, the, you know, you stay, stay there as long as you possibly can. You'll spend your last penny in Las Vegas. Wall Street is, is not a casino, but a, a lot of the other uh, analogies hold, which is that they're really, really happy when you show up. And so I think that's that's an important thing to understand is that there were many people, of course, who did quite well out of GameStop and AMC and what have you. I'm not denying that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are other people who did less well who were quieter about it. And especially people, let's say during this week in January, who were somewhat late to the game. And I, I can point to lots of people who on and off the record who got in at 200, 300, $400 into GameStop and then wound up being very bitter about it. And then we're told uh, online that they should hold on uh, as it was at was as it was sinking and the people who like any movement the people it's it's not a monolith right so people who get into something late whether it's a religion or a political movement or whatever the people who get in late are the most earnest uh, about it right you've, you, I'm sure you've seen that in any anything that you've been involved in. Uh, that the people who are sort of early to it are a little cynical about it and might be quick to sell the people who are late uh, and say I'm um, if Keith Gill is still in, or Roaring Kitty is still in. I'm still in. They stayed in. Uh, we're more likely to stay in. My son's friend, for what it's worth, I asked him a couple of days later. I told him I might write a book about this. He's like, "Oh, really? So did you sell?" And he said, "Yeah, I just sold." You know, so he's he was you know he got out with you know with a profit. He was just doing it for fun. But I know that many people obviously did did hold on and, and even continue to hold on in a belief that you're going to to punish Wall Street by having diamond hands. Um, and you know, wall street wasn't really hurt that much by this. A few people on wall street were hurt a lot, a loss of $7 billion. This one fund might sound like a lot of money, but it's like a, a drop in the bucket as far as wall street's profits in any given year are concerned. Plus a lot of hedge funds, you read the book and you, you heard the whole sort of litany. I didn't go through the entire list cause it would have been a very long chapter, but a lot of people were just in the right place at the right time and made a lot of money. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, I, yeah, so my book is, is, is actually about the people who continued to hold and, and still continue to hold. Um, yeah. and, and one of the things that, that was really, um, sort of springing out at me in, in, in the book is, is that something that you kind of touched on sort of towards the end, but, 
uh, that in that this was uh, uh, that a lot of people were exploited basically, and that their their naivety to the market was exploited was is, is yeah the way I I take well, it. Well, 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 it it is it is uh, even for people who are 50, 60 years old. I mean, uh, Wall Street um, Wall Street has a big information advantage over you. Uh, just like a lot of other businesses, uh, they have a big information advantage over you. They do this all the time. Mm. You don't do this all the time, um, and they don't care if you win or lose. It doesn't matter if you if you did well. They're they're not sad that you did well. Um, they they like it that you did well. There have to be enough people who do well, and especially in this age of of people being very open about their finances uh, and um, and their lives on social media, it's great for them. They like it. It's it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. Wall Street and social media, because people are much more likely to to talk about their victories and their losses on social media, uh, and and then even if they talk about their losses, it's kind of loss porn, right? Uh, these days, and so uh, they they like it when people put themselves out there and talk about what they're doing, uh, because other people want to know what what people they meet on the internet are doing. People that seem like them, people that seem to be in the same same age group and have the same sense of humor uh, on Wall Street bets or Superstonk or whatever, you know they that's that's that gets you into it you're like you feel like you're part of a community and to really be part of the community you've got to be uh have a brokerage account and be doing some of this stuff mm. yeah so the 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 point that i yeah that i'm trying to get get at basically is that i'm curious because the the idea that they've all been exploited to me is is both like interesting but at the same time um i'm watching a community of, I think it's around a million people around the world mm-hmm. who are still holding GameStop, mm-hmm. which which may seem like an absurd number, but I mean, I can, yeah, I can prove it. Um, but the uh, the thing to me is that we were talking about what have what have um, what have the retail investors learned was was a big big question that I had I had, and I think you were kind of posing it in the book, and I I, I was curious of what you thought is like, what if the lesson is hodl like hold like what if that is the ultimate Mm. lesson that people have learned from this because like that's something i've learned like personally Mm. that that uh, you know the quick flash in the pan things don't happen is like if you want long-term value you have to like pick with a company or an index fund that you believe is going to be fine in the long run and just buy it and leave it and walk away you know there's a trope in the cryptocurrency um community that the people who went to prison are the people who held the longest with bitcoin Right. <laughs> so, I, like, what if the meme? What if the the lesson is hodl basically, and that this has educated a bunch of people? Well, I I think that that's really interesting, right? Because, um, you know, I'm 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 older than you, but uh, I I have kids who are much closer to your age and who are right in the the kind of main part of the demographic here, and and I work with with a lot of people who are younger than me uh, who are in that demographic, and so. You know, the generation, the millennial generation is a very well-educated, self-confident, smart generation. And I think the people who got into this uh, because of the, the GameStop squeeze, uh, they had a lot of, of right ideas, in, in my opinion. Uh, things that, um, that you know, ha- are kind of elements of success. They, they don't maybe not have every element of success, but I'll tell you a few things. One is if you buy something and you, you know, maybe not, a single stock, but if you buy some things and you hold on for a long time. So you're very, very 
patient uh, and you, you wait a long time and you're not shaken off easily. That is a, a, a great quality. If you look at, uh, at what Keith Gill did, go back into the, his interactions on the board in 2019 and early 2020. And he was, he was not famous and he was not uh, an icon or a mascot. He was being ridiculed. Look at the responses to his posts. Go look at that and look at his responses to those people. Uh, which were very astute. Uh, people are like, you know, you doubled your money, sell. Oh, you lost $100,000 on paper, you schmuck. You know, why didn't you sell? And he was, you know, he was very, very reasoned. And, and, and you know, and he gives his reasons and he's totally right. Not necessarily that, I mean, if it, obviously it could have turned out badly for him, he could have lost every penny. But I mean, but the, the, his way of thinking was a very profitable way of thinking, which is hold things, have a very long holding period, and check your investments infrequently. That's something that this generation doesn't do. So Robinhood customers, for example, check their accounts in excess of seven times a day. Mm. Uh, and there's uh, lots of evidence, lots of academic evidence that the, the more often you, you check your, your accounts, uh, the more likely you are to do something bad, like sell or panic or whatever. And it's a, an idea in behavioral finance called myopic loss aversion, uh, because you're more likely to see a loss the more often you check. Um, I'll tell you a a funny story is uh, my mom is my mom is 80 years old, and uh, during I guess she she retired a bit early, so she was just about to retire during the the tail end of the dot com bubble. Uh, she did just did retire, I guess she was semi retired, and she would watch CNBC all day. CNBC was a big 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 deal here in the U.S. That my parents are are immigrants. My mom doesn't you know doesn't speak English that well, uh, but you know whatever she she would watch. Uh, she knew everyone's name, uh, money, honey, everybody. And her friend told her that she should trade stocks online. There's, you could use the internet to trade stocks. It was very new then, it was 1998 or something like that. So she had a bit of money in her checking account and she, um, whatever money she had, it wasn't a fortune. She put it into this account at Ameritrade and, uh, and she bought two stocks that she had heard about on CNBC. That whatever the next two people who went on probably talked about. And then she kind of forgot that she had that account because you don't get a, I guess she clicked that she didn't need to get letters from them. And then it was her old AOL account. And then she didn't have really check that email or have that email. So many, many years went by. And then a few years ago, I'm doing my mom's taxes. And uh, she's like, Oh yeah, I got this letter in the mail. Um, and uh, yeah, I owe taxes on this uh, some company that I bought somebody bought the company and uh, now I have to pay capital gains taxes. I do her taxes for her. So, oh, okay. I didn't even know you had that account. He goes, no, you know, I forgot about it. You know, I said, well, mom, what was, what was the other stock you bought? You said you bought two stocks. Like, oh, it was uh, amazon.com. You know, this is 1998, right? No way. So she's mom. got, yeah. So That's it's worth incredible. more than, more than her, her apartment now, you know, and she just put a little bit of money into it. So, and, I'm like, gee, mom, like that's like a, a lot of money for you. Like maybe, maybe you should sell like some of it. I mean, it's uh, you know, of course I was totally wrong. Like it's got continued to go up yeah. since then. And uh, you know, and now she's like a you know, Mrs. Buy and Hold. She's like, no, I'm never gonna sell. I'm holding that stock forever. Like, okay, it's your money, do what you want, it's fine. But you know, just by accident, I mean, this but Amazon.com lost 90% of its value three times since she bought it. Wow, I, I'm pretty sure that she would have at some point uh, during those three times kind of panicked and sold because mm -hmm. it's a meaningful amount of money to her. So, um, 
yeah so obviously that happened by accident but yeah i think there's a long way of answering your question i think that holding for a long time can work out quite well especially if it's a more diversified set of uh of things and not just one company uh, my mom just got lucky it could have been pets.com right which went bankrupt uh but so just lucky that she happened to hear about that on Amazon. And the other thing that that people I think generally get right is a distrust of guys in suits on TV telling you what you should buy. Uh, you know, if your mom and dad's stockbroker is not the person that a uh, 25 year old trusts these days. And you know what? Wall Street is full of people who are very self serving and shady characters. Uh, I, I think people who are influencers are also can be quite shady and self serving as well. Yeah. So uh, I'm not saying that you should just listen to you know random people on TikTok. But yeah, but people telling you, you know what, you think about, just stop and think, is that person, if they're so smart, why are they telling me what to buy? You know, I mean, that's, so I, I think that that this kind of cynicism is, uh, serves the younger generation well too. Yeah, I mean, the, there's there, there's there's an incredible amount of, of cynicism and skepticism about anyone's motives um it's it which is it can be healthy but um uh, someone pointed out to me that it can also be a little bit like anyone criticizing what or anyone saying anything you don't like is then automatically a shill or someone who's been paid off or someone who has financial incentive and it, it becomes a little bit sometimes like the monty python she's a witch sketch um yeah yes which <laughs> yeah uh, anyway, um, the one of the things that you talked about quite extensively in the book um, was the idea that short selling is a necessity in in a market, or it's necessary for yeah. a healthy and functioning market. And um, this is something I was like pretty familiar with. Um, I don't know if you've seen uh, that documentary on Netflix. I'm sure you have the 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 China short. I, I've not watched it, no. But I'm, I mean, oh, okay. I'm quite familiar with uh, with short selling, but not not that one, no. Okay, well, um, for for yourself or anyone that's watching, it's a great, great documentary. I'll, I will check it out. It's, yeah, uh, it's, I, thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, it's 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 quite similar to the story you you'd put out about um, basically like investigator or hedge funds or or, sh or short sellers even going in investigating a company and showing it to be built on maybe say less than sound fundamentals or principles or cash flow and then shorting it and then revealing the report to the market but they were doing it about chinese companies who were attempting to get into the u.s market through reverse mergers um, right yeah uh, so yep. yeah it's a it's a not not a not have not covered themselves in glory those companies no <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah i was hoping you could go through for my audience um some of the reasons perhaps that that you believe short selling is um necessary sure. for a healthy and functioning yeah. market yeah so let me explain it so i mean short selling sounds bad right and and short sellers um, going back to the, the first stock exchanges, uh, which were in the Netherlands in the 1600s, uh, short selling has periodically been banned. Short sellers were vilified. And it seems like a very bad thing to do because most people obviously own stocks and hope that they'll go up uh, and hope that they chose the right thing. And so somebody who's out there actively doing the opposite seems like a bad guy. And if you go to Google right now and you type in short sellers are, uh, the first word that comes up won't be a nice word. Um, and that, so that's not surprising. They have a kind of a, a big reputational issue. Um, and of course, there are short sellers who are, um, in, you know, in some ways manipulative in the sense that they try to talk their book just the same way that there are people who go on financial TV 
and talk about stocks that they own and say, I think this is the best thing since sliced bread and you should all buy it because they want it to go up. So there are people who, who talk their book on both sides of it. But short sellers are, are uh, necessary in markets for a variety of reasons. Um, one is that, it, especially if you are uh, somewhat inexperienced and you come to the market and you're like, I'm going to buy this stock, you want the price to be approximately right. I mean, who knows what the right price is, but you don't want the price to be 10 times what it should be, right? Um, because what, what do you know? Maybe it looks right. Maybe it's been around there for a long time and you buy the stock and then you wind up you know, losing 90% of your money because it eventually slides back to where it should be. So you want somebody out there to be taking the other side of the argument, right? You don't want just two kinds of people, people who think the stock is going to go up and people who don't care and don't buy it. Right, because then you only have the only people who own or are in the stock are those who think bought it and think it'll go up and think it'll go higher. You need somebody who puts their money where their mouth is to take the other side of the bet. Of course, short selling is a very dangerous pastime because, uh, as we learned during the GameStop squeeze for the millionth time, you know your your losses are unlimited. That's why Gabe Plotkin lost almost seven billion dollars of his investors' money. You you better be pretty sure about your position because your losses are potentially monstrous, right? So um, it's not an easy game. And so you have to pick your spots quite carefully. And uh, he, he did not pick his spot carefully enough. Uh, but if you don't have someone in there doing that, then things get out of whack. I'll give you, a, there's an example I spoke about in the book, and I'll give you this example. Uh, this is from an earlier era, and maybe some of you don't remember it, but I remember it very well. Um, the iPhone of its day in 1999 and 2000 was something called the Palm Pilot. This is before we had smartphones. There were these personal digital assistants, and every cool guy had one. And uh, people were crazy about this thing. This was going to be. This could have been the next uh, next iPhone it, or the iPhone, but it wasn't. And Palm was part of a larger company called 3Com. And 3Com, uh, they were like, "Well, people are so excited about this this product. We're going to." Um, sell 5% of this company, the stock market, and then later give the rest of the shares to our shareholders later this year in a tax-free transaction. So 5% of this company, Palm, is in the stock market, and it surged to such a high value that the other 95% of Palm, which was owned by 3Com, uh, was also very valuable, but 3Com, which had a lot of other businesses, had a sharply negative value. So there's basically $20 billion, even if 3Com was worth nothing, there was $20 billion of value just sitting there that shouldn't have been there. And the very next day, the Wall Street Journal wrote an article about it. And then some other people wrote articles about it. And it persisted for weeks. And the reason was it just it just was too dangerous and too expensive for short sellers to get in there. Like they, they would have loved to close the gap. But the fact that they couldn't close the gap in that point in history uh, meant that lots of people bought Palm stock unknowingly and then lost their shirts, and in the end lost almost everything because the price was wrong. And they didn't read the article in the Wall Street Journal. Or maybe they read the article in the Wall Street Journal and they thought that it was that whoever wrote it was a shill. I get a lot of, uh, of nasty hate mail, please don't, don't send me any, uh, calling me a shill for writing this book. Uh, I only get paid a salary by the Wall Street Journal. I can't own stocks. I don't get paid by hedge funds. If any hedge funds want to send me a nice check, go ahead. I'll have to return it, but it'll be thrilling to have a very large check to show my family, but nobody pays uh, pays me other than the Wall Street Journal, and nobody paid the reporters who wrote that article. Uh, but they could have saved a lot of, of retail investors a lot of money 
were just buying at the wrong price. People who are professionals in the market do read the Wall Street Journal and, and, and regularly do, do those calculations, and they weren't the ones in there. So it was totally a loss inflicted upon retail investors. And there are many examples like that, not just frauds like Enron or Valiant and WorldCom, but, uh, but just companies that are just too expensive. Short sellers, uh, it, it, any time you, and they've been banned many times, markets get out of whack. So yeah, so that's my that's my spiel on on short selling. It's uh it's a useful thing for you as a retail investor for them to to be there. Of course, they they looked especially evil in the case of GameStop because in the United States here, a whole generation grew up going to GameStop and it's part of their childhood. AMC theaters as well, and so uh, they kind of conflate betting against the stock as trying to ruin the company, which are two different things. You're not trying to ruin the company by betting against the stock you're betting that the company will you know will do badly you're not it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy it's kind of get the chicken before the egg kind of thing you're you're making a bet and you're hoping you're right uh, and I can see why why gamestop is near and dear to to my sons for sure and if it goes out of business one day they'll be they'll be sad they'll be nostalgic about it Oh, I don't think they're going out of business for a while now. They've really rode this. Um, yeah, no, no, they they uh, they extended their lifespan considerably for sure. Yeah, I mean whether whether they were the the company that 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 whether Keith Gill had envisioned this <laughs> no. um, when he started investing, um, it they've they've definitely like the Ryan Cohen comment coming on board, uh, the clearing of the debt. Um, they've got yeah, there's well they've got they've spent some of it now, but they had one point seven billion in in cash to 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 invest yeah you know the comp- companies on much sounder footing financially yeah. for sure yeah. yeah what do you think of the company's sort of like future now and what what did you make of because uh, you 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 must have gone back to um like keith gill's original um sort of fundamentals breakdown of the of the stock like did you as someone who writes about stocks, did you think that that initial analysis, the one that um, the the video that's like uh, talking about the big short squeeze, the first time it just like breaks down mm-hmm. why he thinks there's you know a lot of a lot of yeah reasons that you would want to like yeah. the stock. Like, what was your your yeah? yeah no, I think uh, I think the arguments that he made were very sophisticated, and that's you know it's kind of a surprising thing is like the initial stuff that he said he was basically kind of ignored on on this bulletin board and ridiculed. Uh, of course, people didn't know that he's a chartered financial analyst, which is a very difficult qualification to get, requiring about a thousand hours of study and passing three very difficult tests that most people don't pass. Uh, and so he's he's financially sophisticated. I think his arguments were sound. I think if he made those arguments inside a big professional investment fund, there's a pretty good chance that he his views would have been taken seriously. Investment funds aren't in the business of betting all their marbles on one stock, of course, but I think that he could have persuaded uh, his bosses at a at a fund to to take a stake in in GameStop, and of course some people did, right? Michael Michael Burry, who's a a really successful value investor, took a stake, and and others did as well. And uh, I, you know I I can't get into Ryan Cohen's head as to why he began to do it in the summer of 2020. I think that um, he had an eye to taking the business over, and of course he's he has a great track record as an entrepreneur with uh, with Chewy. So, uh, so he he certainly saw potential as well. So, no, I think Keith Gill's analysis was correct. And listen, everything in the stock market is kind of a probabilistic exercise. Nobody knows the future. So, if you're a a, a value investor and you buy into something, you're never sure that you're going to be right. 
But if you're uh, confident that you're going to be right and you have reasons on your side, and then something is cheap enough, and that's the whole thing behind. And you know, a lot of Keith Gill watches videos. His language is the language of Benjamin Graham, who you know, who's Warren Buffett's mentor. You, you know, he he. There's a margin of safety in it. Mm. So you know, if I'm if I'm right, then this thing is undervalued, and if if I'm wrong, then it, it's worth at least this much. And and that's that's how value investors think. So he was, uh, he may have put YOLO on his posts, but he was making basically a, a value argument. Mm. Now I want to come back to the YOLO idea um, a little bit, but before that, before we get there, just um, while we're still sort of vaguely talking about short selling, um, so you mentioned um, rehypothecation and naked short selling in the book, and mm-hmm. but you sort of yeah didn't spend very long on it. You sort of like a paragraph or something. And this book is written for, um, you know, for my sister or my mom or any educated person who, you know, is not going to kind of geek out on finance. I'm I'm happy to, to talk about all that stuff for a long, long time because I do geek out on finance. So um, the short interest in, in GameStop at its peak reached about 140% of the float, uh, which is an extreme, extreme level. So uh, it, it's like having a like a really overcrowded theater full of short sellers and one little narrow door, right? If anything goes wrong, if anyone drops a cigarette and the carpet catches on fire, uh, the, you're going to have a problem. And uh, so there's like a lot of hubris among these hedge funds in in being in that position. And then I, I tell you that this this is off told to me uh, on on background, so I won't say who it was, but some of these people were were aware that it was being talked about on social media and they didn't care. They didn't take it very seriously. Uh, um, And yeah. And then there was a a massive uh, short squeeze and even bigger really than, than what you see from the net short interest, because the original funds that were in there uh, all got out very quickly. So by, uh, by the 27th or 28th of January of last year, those funds had lost so much money. They were completely out of their positions. Uh, Melvin Capital was out by the close of business on the 26th. And so the reason that the short interest didn't go down more is that other funds saw this happening and couldn't believe how much GameStop and these other companies had gone up and they wanted a bite at the apple. And they they just wanted to make some quick money and sell the stock short uh, at, at what they saw as elevated levels. And then Elon Musk came in with his GameStop tweet and just set the thing on fire all over again. And and then they also had to run for the exit. So uh, it's it wasn't it wasn't all just one body of of short sellers there. It was a it was two waves basically. Mm. So the just just for sort of interest um, to you perhaps uh, the I have looked at a number of different uh, sources and different like reportings of like what the level of short interest was. Um, now there was some people were reporting it. I think it was SIBO uh, Global Markets were reporting at the end of the year, of at the end of twenty twenty, that the sh- the the float was two hundred and sixty one percent short sold. Um, there was another one from September twenty twenty that had it at two hundred and ninety two percent. And the point I'm trying to make here is is not that like well, first of all, I think it's kind of weird that. All of these different places are reporting different things, but that I guess mm-hmm. that's just part part and parcel of a very messy financial system. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, like, if we're going to be idealistic, we wouldn't want that. But that's not the world we live in. Uh, but essentially, like you 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 talk about like this rehypothecation being 
like fine basically that it's not a right. big deal and and to me that there's two issues that i kind of feel are, are are quite big that that should be looked at as a result of this saga and it's like first of all it's like when when you can have like two to three and and there there are other lawsuits that allege like much higher numbers of of times the float mm-hmm. being sh- uh, short, sold short that's a real difficult one mm-hmm. to get out that the, it's the argument that they make is that it's seriously devaluing the investment made by the by the buyer but there's a retail investor or a pension or a, a hedge fund mm-hmm. is that when there's three times as many shares in circulation as should exist that it's of serious detriment to the value of that that investment and like for me that that feels like it, it feels like the the explanation is like oh rehypothecation just happens and that's it it feels like the outsized mm-hmm. damage of that is is bigger than than perhaps people are, are willing to accept and that the sec have written a lot of papers about how mm-hmm. naked short selling can damage the market and yeah. and uh, Dr. Suzanne Trimbath wrote her, her entire um, PhD thesis and book on mm-hmm. about about this this issue and yeah I I don't know I, it feels like there's maybe something bigger to look at here in right. the naked short selling thing as as a lesson and and something to look at for the 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 way we regulate financial markets um, or do you, do you think yeah that's, I mean that's that's, uh, that's I mean that's certainly possible. Um, in terms of the different uh, different calculations out there, it just depends how you how you calculate it. You do know how many shares are sold short, uh, but what percentage, and you know what the float is. Uh, but then the the what do you consider the the actual float, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that will yield different percentages. I, I will say that whether it's one hundred and forty percent or two hundred and sixty percent, that's probably pretty excessive. Uh, and so. You know, perhaps the the SEC should that a, a red light should go off, and they should say, "Listen, this is this is an excessive and and dangerous level uh, of short interest, and there you know there should not be it should not exceed x x amount uh, because there's no reason for uh, 140% or 260% or whatever you want to call it of a company's shares of float to be to be sold short. So there's uh, you probably since you've read a lot about it, you know that in the United States. It used to be uh, possible to nakedly short uh, stock, or much much easier, before rules instituted in 2005 called Regulation SHO, mm-hmm. and those have since been tightened. Uh, there was another, a couple of rounds of tightening of it, uh, one in 2010, and then one I think later that year. But basically, that says you have to locate uh, uh, a share, but. I, I think that there are obviously there, there are holes there because you know the prime brokers who are in the business of locating a share, maybe they located the same share twice. Uh, in the case of reapothecation, so um, you know a short seller says they located a share, they sold it. You're the buyer. You put it in your account at Charles Schwab, and then somebody approaches you at Charles Schwab, and there's no label on that stock because all the stock is fungible, meaning they're all exchangeable for one another. And somebody says, oh, I see you have, uh, you know, they don't come to you, the customer. Of course, they go to Charles Schwab and Charles Schwab says, oh yeah, no, no one's borrowed this. You can, you can borrow it. You, they'll lend out some percentage of the stock that their customers own. That's how, uh, by the way, Robinhood is a major um, lender of stock uh, because that's one way they make money. That's one way you can have $0 commissions. Uh, a, a lot of their clients happen to own, guess what? GameStop and AMC. Uh, around the time time of the GameStop squeeze, so when somebody wanted to borrow GameStop or AMC, they're like, "Oh yeah, that happens to be a very widely owned stock among our customers. 
yeah, you can borrow some. Uh, is quite a high borrowing rate for that. I hope you don't mind because most most stocks these days the borrowing rate is zero point five percent, and they were lending it out for like twenty three percent a year, I think, at the peak. So uh, they were making some nice money lending that out. It's just part of their business. That's how that's how you don't pay commission. You know, it's not free to trade. It it, it they say it's free, but it's not really free. Like running Robinhood costs money, and they want to make a profit too. So yeah, so. That's that's the business. I I, I certainly don't, don't wouldn't disagree with tightening up um, the sort of these excessive levels of of short interest, uh, but making it impossible to short stock would would uh, be taking it too far, in my opinion, because that would harm retail investors and harm markets overall. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for anyone that that, that you make a very a very compelling case in the book that that when you restrict short selling like when you ban it outright that markets do worse and i guess that's yeah. probably because of uh, correct me if i'm wrong of this phenomenon actually you talk about towards the end of the book where you know if wall street is making money no matter which way the the market is going as long as it's not that like i think it's the you quote um jordan belfort it's, it's not that it's not as long as liquidity is not drying up and the markets are, sta- are stagnating as long as right. it's going one way um and yeah, it basically it leads me to the, this this idea that like are are we all just like swimming around like yeah fish for the sharks to eat when whenever we're involved in the world of finance like is finance like just inherently mm-hmm. layered in the, or not layered but inherently like set that way in the the big yeah. players will continue to do the best and continue to like swallow up no no not necessarily no let me i mean let me tell you and this is the hopeful thing um in, in my message is that you know if you you want to you don't like wall street for whatever reason as a as an institution i mean wall street finances is eight percent of gross domestic product in the u.s which is kind of an amazing number. Uh, in the 1950s, it was four percent, and that was probably too high, right? And so, you know, where you had fixed commissions and broker brokers were fat and happy, but they could never imagine how lucrative the business has become today, right? So, if you feel badly about that, if you feel that uh, that Wall Street's a greedy place, that people make money for for nothing, and you you resent the sort of how much they skim off of of the public savings. Um, and you want to to do well. You want to beat Wall Street, and that was kind of what what this whole revolution was about, right? It was uh, some people had one goal, some had the other goal, and some had both goals, right? Stick it to the man, stick it to Wall Street, and make money in the process. Um, and I, I, the reason that I, I call it, I think some people got a little angry about the the title, the revolution that wasn't, is that once you the dust settled, you can see that neither one of those was really achieved. But it, it is achievable, and it's achievable through a completely different uh, method, which is basically being um, being passive, right? Because if you if you were to to be a completely passive investor, this was not possible thirty or forty or fifty years ago. Uh, because, but the same technology that that makes Robinhood possible makes uh, being uh, profitably passive possible. So, if you just own a, a basket of of index funds, basically, you touch them very rarely. You look at them very rarely. Wall Street is going to make pennies off of you. They're going to make a little bit because they have to, but they're going to make so little money off of you. You're just going to be a free rider. And the reason that can be offered to you is because there are other people who are active. It's just like with credit cards. Um, 
with credit cards, uh, I, I happen to be a very kind of cautious person financially. And I, I think except for once, uh, I've paid off my credit card bill. I've never put something on a credit card that I wasn't confident I was able to pay off. I just delayed the purchase, delayed gratification. Uh, but lots of people carry credit card balances. And the reason that there's this really convenient piece of plastic I can carry all over the world in my pocket, uh, and I even get airline miles for it, is because of those people, because they subsidize my my use of the service, right? And so let those very busy active traders subsidize your use of Wall Street services. Wall Street's going to make money off of them, but it doesn't have to make money off of you. Wall Street was petrified going into this episode because lots of people were sort of wising up and becoming passive investors and basically paying very little to Wall Street. They were using robo-advisors or they were just doing it themselves and buying a bunch of exchange-traded funds or what have you and index funds and and just sitting there and not, not checking all the time. And if you do that, if you own a basket of index funds, you're going to beat statistically speaking over the long run, 85% of your peers in the market. And you're going to beat 80% of the professionals, 80% of, in, of, of investment funds. And you'll beat 90% of hedge funds, by the way. Hedge funds have been doing terribly because they, they're so expensive. Um, so yeah, if you want to kind of beat Wall Street and be Wall Street's worst enemy, that's, that's, that's not as exciting. It's not as fun. I get it. But that's, that's what you should do. Uh, I get the whole intellectual uh, exercise and the fun of trying to, to beat the man and being part of the community and trading a lot and finding some hack. And um, I, I'm inclined that way too. I'm kind of a, I've got a speculative uh, bug as well, which I can't indulge because I work at the Wall Street Journal. So I don't, I don't own stocks. I don't own any stocks. I just own, own funds. Um, I think if, if I had a different profession, I might be tempted to, even though I know it's not good for me to go in and, and be like a, a more active investor. But I think it's, uh, people do succeed, but I think on the whole, they, they do worse than just being a passive investor. That's the evidence is really strong. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, you, I think you're probably right there. People are a little angry at the title, but then, you know, part of me was like, I think it's excellent marketing because if I saw it right and I was in the bookstore and I looked at it and I went, that guy's a shill. Let's see what he wrote. Like that, that would be my immediate reaction. I'd be like, let's see where he's wrong. Um, right. <laughs> um, Listen, I, 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 Josh, I'm, I'm hoping so, right? Do you think? Do you think these any angry people buying my book and then maybe I mean before they, before they lit it on fire? You know, hopefully they paid for it, right? <laughs> yeah. They didn't. They didn't walk out with it, right? Hopefully, I mean, yeah, yeah. As long as you're not in San Francisco, you're probably alright. Okay, um, good. <laughs> oh, well, listen. I mean, writing. I'll tell you, writing a book is is hard. Uh, I spent a, I spent a year on this, um, and every weekend and vacation and um, and evening falling asleep on my keyboard. So um, it, it it does. Not to complain, but it does pay me a little bit when people kind of haven't read it at all, you know, and send a, a nasty note or or a nasty review or something like that. You know, or if you don't read it and you don't like it, then say whatever you want. Just give me your honest opinion. I'm I'm not like a, too egotistical, but you know, at least take a look at it. I sp if I could spend a year writing writing it, you can spend, you know, Josh, you stayed up all night reading it, right? I mean, you know, you can. It was right, quite you don't have to. Night. We have to read it in one night. You don't have to read it in one night, but I mean, right? I mean, it's you know then at least have a have a look at it skim it you know before you express an opinion right yeah no i mean like there's a lot of stuff in there that that, that i didn't know that was that was really interesting to me like again like i i 
I don't see it as a revolution that wasn't. This is where this is like one of the big things that I, I think we we may maybe slightly disagree. Maybe not. But I see that revolution as that million people that I talked about educating themselves financially, like learning the the to huddle to hold, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there were like like there was it was for me. It's almost like watching people LARPing as a meme of the mm-hmm. the ape that doesn't sell and and for me that's like incredibly powerful because like you all the people that turned around and and sold their shares weren't embodying the meme and then once the meme becomes like something so like crystallized in the, in the mind of like the zeitgeist or the you know the culture or whatever i think it becomes like something that that is beyond just like a weird movement it becomes this thing that is like almost oh I'm, yeah, it's, it's difficult to define but yeah it just becomes this very powerful thing where people have like learned and they've educated themselves about financial markets and that is the biggest one and they've thought yeah. about their net worth and thought about financially planning their future and then on top of that like gamestop might be about to do some really cool stuff with either tokenizing their stock or issuing an nft dividend or like bringing the the traditional world of finance into the 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 sort of more yeah blockchain mm-hmm. finance 2.0 side and for me that's the revolution well the the fact that here in the united states more than 10 million young people opened accounts not just as a result of this by the way i mean they they were in before but a lot of in a lot of them because they were bored because of the pandemic and things like that but the fact that they they have their foot on the financial ladder is great because in, in the United States, and it, it's a little bit better in the UK, I guess, where you have socialized medicine and things like that. But uh, here in the United States, there's a real retirement crisis and a healthcare crisis and a savings crisis. And so if you, if you have young people who otherwise would not have taken any interest in finance or opened up accounts who now have them, uh, then that's, that's certainly a good thing good, uh, for most of them. Uh, I mean, if if you if you continue to be very very bitter about this, uh, and then you decide that Wall Street's a crooked place, and I'm not going to participate at all, uh, which a lot of people did uh, after the dot com crash, um, that's not good, right? I mean, that's if you if you you you, you kind of need you need Wall Street in the United States for sure if you want to build a Nasdaq. It's just pretty hard to do any other way. You could buy houses, I guess, or whatever, you know, but just sticking money in the bank at 0.1% is, is going to take a long, long time to build up any kind of substantial savings. So you, you need to buy these riskier assets, you know, and then, and then hodl, you know, when they gyrate, you know, like my mom, you know, who had no idea that she was doing it. Right. I mean, she bought that Amazon stock and then just was oblivious to the fact that she even owned it when it was going through these three major swoons, right? And uh, but if you can do that, you know, being aware that you own the stock and you know, and just hang on or whatever, owning stocks has worked out really well in the long run. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely has. So, I mean, th- what you've said there actually brings me nicely to the la- the last kind of question I want to ask you um, was you're talking there about you sort of things in america we you know we you don't have socialized medicine um there's maybe a little more poverty um i wouldn't say that we are that far off in terms of inequality i think we're somewhere in the same same region in in terms of yeah like the the just 
sheer levels of inequality there is. <laughs> Um, I'm not one of these people who thinks there should be none. That would be insane. But right. <laughs> but the yeah, like what do you think drives the YOLO basically? Like, what is it that, mm. that makes so many people so willing to just like go? Well, fuck it, you know, with ten grand. Uh, yeah, is that is it? I just think uh, I think I think we are at a moment it? in history where people are more likely to do it. I think one thing is the pandemic. Uh, people have been more, much more reckless generally in the United States in many other ways uh, in terms of like driving and drug use and things like that. And so I think that people um, ha are less averse to to risk as a result of the pandemic. It just flipped a switch psychologically. But I think that uh, having 0% interest rates for a long time also made people much more willing to take financial. It's, it's the difference. It's not the the difference between kind of a bird in the hand and two of the bush it's it's a 0.1 birds in the hand and and 10 in the bush right i mean because these these very big kind of financial long shots have tended to pay off i guess as long as you get out in time but it it tends to to make just sitting and holding your cash and saving your money extremely unattractive and the flip side of that is that things that are the the extreme end of the risk spectrum have tended to do very very well during this period of zero interest rates, that was part of the intent of, of having rates be so low. I'm not saying that they should be so low or that it's a good thing or it was a good policy necessarily. It probably was not, but it, it unleashed those animal spirits. And that's that's something that's unique to this moment in time, this decade. And then you had uh, the whole BTFD sentiment, which is you know the, the Fed would always be there to, to bail you out. That every time there was a big swoon in the markets, because of this, because of that, because of the Greek crisis, you know, you got, I'll, I can go and list ten things in the last ten years yeah, yeah. that caused a major market sell-off, including, you know, COVID was the big one, right? Remember how how big the sell-off was. Yeah. Well, if you bought into the teeth of that, you did very well. As much of anything you bought in the teeth of that, but especially the riskiest things, you bought airline stocks. You know, that was a pretty crazy thing to buy. You know, when air travel basically just declined to 1960s levels in a matter of a few weeks, you know, when the, the pandemic first hit, right? Yeah. So you, you, were, you were pretty gutsy to buy that and it worked out beautifully. And so I think that this generation also has, has this kind of Pavlovian conditioning to taking big risks when scary stuff happens. There's going to be one time it's not going to work out. I, I have to be the bearer of bad news here. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's going to blow up in your face. It's like picking up they say like picking up nickels in front of a bulldozer, nickels, five cents here in the United States, picking yeah. up pennies in front of a, a a bulldozer that, you know, it's moving really slowly. There's a bunch of free money there, but you know, one time bulldozer is going to speed up and crush your fingers. I mean, that's, that's just the, you know, there's no free money in the world and you know, you're going to nine, nine times it's going to work out in the 10th time. It's, it's not going to work out because financial markets are kind of cruel that way uh, to people who think they figured it out. Um, but yeah, I think it was a moment in time. And I think inequality too, of course. I mean, the sense of of yawning inequality, especially since the financial crisis where Wall Street, it seemed like there was a different set of rules for Wall Street and for wealth, wealthy people. And, I, and there are a different set of rules for Wall Street and for wealthy people. In the United States, if you have a lot of money, you just, even just committing a run-of-the-mill crime, your chances of, uh, of um, being convicted uh, and doing any serious time and suffering serious consequences are much, much lower. So it's, it's, uh, it's very corrosive to society. And I think uh, you can totally understand why there is, um, is resentment there. And, and I'm sure that that was part of, uh, of the sentiment that fueled this. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's definitely in there. Um, I think you, you, yeah, 
that's that's definitely a big bit of it. I mean, the like the other the other sentiment that really drove it is just like, you know, it, this perception that Wall Street is a casino and has been for a long time, and that this was just like our turn to get in on it. You know, yeah. Which well, was, how did it work out for the the last generation or the one before? Right. That's the thing is that that people they didn't huddle. It, that that's what that's why it's like all this the arc of history, right? I mean. You, the generation before and the one before that and the one before that, they all made the same, the different flavors, but the same error, right? Which was just getting getting hoodwinked by Wall Street. And it wasn't necessarily losing all their money or losing money at all, but it was making less money than they should have mm. for the risk that they were assuming. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that's that mistake is is unfortunately is being repeated. You understand who's making money, understand how they make money. When you deal with anybody financially, whether it's in, in investing or or some other related financial area, ask how they're being compensated. Ask questions. Look at it. You know, are they being paid on the front end? Or are they being paid on the back end? I mean, there are lots of honest people and mostly honest people working in in, in finance, but you know, but but they're they're self-serving, they're out for themselves. So ask, ask how they're getting paid. You know, if it's a, a one of these zero commission brokers, they're all zero commission these days. And especially one uh, like Robinhood or Beeble uh, that gets paid primarily from your level of activity. Well, what are their incentives? Are their incentives aligned with mine? They want you to trade a lot. Is that good and for options me? Options too. And options and options are are the ultimate sucker bet. Sorry guys, but they they have long been viewed. Purchases of of options, call or put, have been viewed as um, sort of a way to fleece retail. They have. Um, you can don't don't take my word for it. No, I I would believe you. I if yeah. you told me any financial mechanism in the entire world of finance were was designed to screw retail, I would probably believe you. <laughs> it's not. It's not a diff. That's not a difficult thing to sell me on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> mm. But um, that definitely feels like a really nice place to leave it. Um, so everyone who is listening to this and no doubt is going straight to the comment section to call you a shill. So don't read the comments, man. Um, I would definitely, definitely recommend you consider having a look at the book. Um, it was a really fun trip for me through those like absolutely wild days uh, in the lead up to the squeeze. I learned a lot. Um, and yeah, I might not necessarily agree with some of your conclusions as we've discussed, but um, mm. really well put together book, man. And uh, much respect for 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 writing it. It's because uh, you've you've successfully managed to talk about a lot of things that perhaps some people of your generation would struggle to even articulate. Um, so yeah, nice work. <laughs> hey, thank you. Thanks for having me, Josh. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.